Everybody, um, we Tyler and I are here and uh, have a bit of a difficult um, topic today. But this podcast um, was for us was always about showing up authentically and truthful to ourselves, however we are in that moment, and you know pulling the veil away from perfection and showing up to look perfect all the time and um and and ultimately just being vulnerable so um i felt like i could not move forward with posting more content and conversations with all of these amazing people that we have in uh, in line without taking a little bit of time to be vulnerable and, and share what's going on in the background because um, I don't, I, I just want it to be able to show up in other contexts and I don't want to hide it and anyway, so... Um, So two weeks ago, um, my brother Matt took his life. He decided this was not a life that he wanted. And, um, I want to talk a little bit about him, and, um, and I want to talk a little bit about veteran suicide and alternative ways of healing depression and finding happiness that may not be apparent to our normative culture and I want to talk a little bit about grief and I intend to get through all this pretty quickly so I have notes so that I could remember everything I wanted to say Tyler's here with me he may jump in randomly I know he's gonna um, talk specifically at one point um, and uh, yeah you're, Tyler you're welcome to jump in and say anything at any point <clears throat> um, so my brother Matt was um, 31 and he um, was not married but leaves behind his four year old son River Um, he was in the military for over 10 years ultimately as an EOD tech which is explosive ordinance disposal which is an incredibly difficult program to um, get through with a really high dropout rate so very was very proud of him to get through that um, and um, he was he's my only sibling really I have a stepsister um, but biologically um he was my older brother and um there's definitely a shared experience that you have with siblings that is unlike any other relationship you know you have your nuclear nuclear family and you may all experience 
the same general memories or you experience the same life, but siblings can relate on a whole other level because we have our own experiences of our parents and um so it's difficult because I feel like he is like the only person that could ever get me in in any sort of particular way no one else could really ever even try to understand how I feel because he was the only one that lived anything similar to what I live and our experiences and our perspectives and the way we process it might have been different but um we can appreciate things in the same way so it's very difficult to lose a sibling because you're losing that person that understands things the way you do. Um, uh, Matt, I, I always, um, I'm trying to follow my notes. Um, I always was concerned about how Matt was doing and if he was happy and what was going on because he was very independent um and we he lived really far away because he was in the military he was always somewhere else or he was deployed um we had a little bit of time where we didn't live together because he stayed behind to live with my mom when I moved to Wisconsin so there are some like critical experiences that we didn't really get to have together um what the fuck am I trying to say (laughs) I'll just go what my notes are I Matt was never formally diagnosed with anything and I don't want to use labels now um but I want to speak to my experiences um he just as, just an example of something you know Matt never bought us presents for like Christmas or birthdays um and we felt we being the family kind of sometimes felt that that was not very thoughtful of other people and maybe a little self-centered and um it I know that that's a silly example but it was things like that over time where um it was hard to give something that we didn't feel like we were getting in return it's really hard to like spend the time and energy to give buy and give a present to someone who isn't spending that time and energy to do the same for you and um that is a very weird example of one reason why some of us have this porter barking at other dogs can you tell him to not um that is a weird example of one reason why some of us may have like pulled away or just in our hearts pulled away a little bit and like i said before he was very independent and um didn't always make himself available to family gatherings um it was just not something he was interested in doing because of just the experiences we had growing up and the experiences that he had and the way that he did or did not process those and ultimately we're all allowed to put up our own boundaries i have no resentment for how he chose to you know distance himself um that was his choice can't I can't judge him we can all put up our own boundaries that make us feel comfortable and safe and you know that may look different for everyone um but he wasn't always around so as sad as it is to say and as hard as it is to really explain I feel that 
um, you know, I wasn't talking to Matt regularly or like on a daily basis or like he was on the other side of the country. So I wasn't even seeing him often. I'm really grateful that I had the opportunity to see him in April of this year. And that was, I mean, we had gone years between seeing each other in our adult life. So unfortunately, as sad as it is to say, the truth is that the, the distance in the relationship is probably making it easier. I think if you, to, to accept his passing, or maybe it's making it more confusing. I feel like if you were talking to someone every single day, and then all of a sudden they're gone, that is probably way more difficult. But maybe it's easier to under for the mind to comprehend what has actually happened, because there's such a stark contrast in your experience of them. So I'm used to going weeks or months at a time without hearing from him, to be quite honest, or, or without me reaching out either. So in a sad way, it's making it easier. But obviously, when I think about the memories that we cannot have, that's what makes it obviously difficult. Um, I just want to speak to, again, to, I always worried about, um, if he was really happy, because, you know, he got married at, like, 21 or 22, and was married for a few years, and got divorced, and then pretty quickly, in my eyes, pretty quickly turned around and got married again, had a child, got divorced, pretty quickly was in a relationship again, and that brings us to present day. And that, I mean, two divorces before you're even 30 years old, and then you have a child in in one of those, and you're in the military this whole time, you're moving around, and you're not really connected to family, and I didn't really know what his life was really like, and how he deals with all that. I remember him saying divorce is like an adult breakup. So whether he rationalized it that way or not, that was how he was able to emotionally handle it. He's like, it's an adult breakup. (laughs) And so anyway, but my point is I don't really know how happy he was or I was always in the back of my mind kind of concerned about that because of, you know, what I know our childhood was like. And and when I say that, I mean in regards to our mom, who was diagnosed bipolar and uh, depressed, depressive and was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. And um, so she, she was sort of physically falling apart as the years went by. But also, you know, I have memories of my mom threatening to hurt herself with a knife in front of us. And I have a memory of like, my mom would get upset in some sort of way. And I can remember my brother and I running to the kitchen and my brother is hiding the knife set under the cupboard. And he's probably like nine. He was like three years older than me. So, um, I share that to try to give some background of some of the really difficult memories um that we had with my mom i remember in a we were in a grocery store and for whatever reason my i remember my mom dragging my crying brother down the aisle literally by his arm dragging him and someone else in the store called the police and we were in the back of the store with the police and they gave us these fucking teddy bears and i'm like why the fuck would i want this teddy bear like to remember this fucked up moment and I'm like six or seven and I share that to be vulnerable and I share that to give some context of what I mean when I talk about like our troubling childhood and then my dad got remarried and it was not very uh, smooth easy relationship with our stepmom and there was a lot of challenging um, memories with that and it was not a very good relationship for either of us with our stepmom, especially with Matt. And so, you know, that is part of the reason that Matt shared with me that he wasn't interested in 
coming to family events it was sort of his boundary. He didn't want to spend his time around certain people and as that may be hurtful for some people to listen to but that was the truth that he shared with me and I am sharing that to give context of the challenges that we faced when we were younger which add to my concern of his happiness because I was concerned about how he was or was not processing these things that we experienced as children and how they might have been showing up in his adult life and I realized that I am not in control or have any control over someone else's happiness and you may think like oh well you know I I could say something I could push them to go into therapy or whatever it is like I don't have any control I have no control over someone else's happiness and I have to accept that and with all those shitty things (laughs) I do want to say some nice memories um lots of really nice memories visiting our grandparents house Um, in New York when we were growing up. My grandpa was very um, artsy and outdoorsy and we were always making things, shooting bow and arrows. Um, Just lots of fun memories there and um, playing video games. I I always joke about um, like, oh, Halo. Yeah, I know a lot about Halo. I used to play Capture the Flag with my brother on Halo. And um, uh, I remember like when my brother was like 13, 14, and he would have his friends over and they'd be playing Dungeons and Dragons. And I took great pride in being the annoying little sister. Um, I found a lot of joy in like consciously annoying them. (laughs) Um And I also like to say, um, like, more on video games, we would play Pac-Man, and we played, I don't know why I'm crying so much about (laughs) Pac-Man, but we would play, um, uh, like, two-player, and we got to the 20th level, which is the highest level, and I always tell people when, if we're playing Pac-Man, um... I tell people I'm the best, although I don't play enough to really be the best. I think I think I need to dedicate more time to claim that title. But when we were younger, we played Pac-Man, and we got all the way to the 20th level. And I tell people, the 20th level, the size of the walls are dots. Like, the size of the walls are the size of the dots that you have to eat. There's nowhere to hide. And I remember playing the 20th level with him and winning. And we, we just had so much fun. And he, um, lots of fun doing fun things. <laughs> um, and... And I'm grateful that I got to visit him in Florida uh, just a few months before his passing. Um, it was It's challenging because he had a best friend that a year prior had taken his life after um, some sort of difficulty in his the friend's romantic relationship and, um, took his life, took his life. And, you know, my brother had a tattoo honoring his friend Connor and, um, he, you know, I've looked back on his Facebook and he's posted about suicide prevention. And when I was visiting my brother in April, I even asked him, would you ever do that? And he said, no, So, I believe him. I believe that he would have never wanted to do that. And, um, I'm glad I asked, because what else can I do but ask point blank? 
Um, so, Matt was in the military for over a decade, and I think we feel like that really gave him structure and guidance, and structure was something that, like, he did really well with. Um, he was, you know, very intelligent, like I said, he got through this crazy EOD program, um, and I think he really enjoyed the military, and he deployed to Afghanistan and Iraq, um, and I also feel like after over a decade of being in the army, his transition to civilian life was incredibly confusing. He wasn't sure how to take his MOS being explosive ordnance disposal into civilian life. And the rare jobs that he did get were not always easy. One of them was a, a temporary job in Puerto Rico, which he took to make money for his family, but the byproduct of that was that he missed, if I can remember correctly, he missed Chris, like his first Christmas with his son, and, um, or it was something significant like that, he was gone, and so it was difficult for him to figure out how to take everything he learned in the military into this civilian world, and I'm sure that the Veteran Affairs Program has resources. Whether he used them or not, I don't know, but I know that this is incredibly challenging for many veterans, going from being in the military to civilian life, and I know that that is a huge aspect to 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 depression and, and decisions like suicide, and ultimately he felt like the life ahead of him was not something that he wanted, and there are many other aspects at play that I feel like if I were to ask him, would you feel comfortable with me sharing or not, there would be certain things that he would probably want to keep private, so there's certain things that I just don't need to say um, to to keep his, his privacy, um, but there were certainly other factors at play where... Um, that added to a very unclear future um, that he wasn't prepared to go through. And um, he was also someone who um, he was loved I, I, these are my words. He loved to be in love. Um, he was a, I think he was a romantic and I think that he put a lot of his happiness in the relationship bucket and my dad put it like people very easily had a love affair with Matthew because he was so likable and so funny and so intelligent and, um, very social, um, had a good, like, variety of interests, and it was very easy for people to fall in love with Matt with for all those qualities. But, as I mentioned before, you know, he had divorce, and um, sometimes those relationships didn't always pan out. So, I think, you know, I'll just say that um, love lost was very challenging for him. And I don't know a lot about veteran suicide or suicide in general, but I have done a little bit of research and, you know, I have a friend in uh, a nurse, has a nurse in mental health and, um, you know, I've talked a little bit about just generally the lack of of care and of guidance in at least American culture with caring for your mental health and 
I just have some things that I want to read. I'm not really intending this podcast to be some, like, scientific, annotated, like, this is where I got my reference type stuff, but there are some things I want to read off just to expose some of what's going on in our culture, and I'm going to read some stuff from a John Hopkins resource. It's about suicide risk in general, but also specifically in the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. Um, People have referred to suicide in the pandemic as the pandemic that no one is talking about because of how rampant it is and because of the increase of suicide and depression from what we are experiencing on a day-to-day because of the pandemic. So I just want to read a few things off real quick. I'm going to go into my speedy talk voice. Um, The annual suicide rate in the U.S. is 14.5 per 100,000 as of 2019. The rate steadily has increased um, since 2000. Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the U.S. across all ages. 78% of completed suicides are by male and 89% are by white. 51% of suicides are via firearm, 26 via suffocation, and 15 via poisoning. Previous pandemics have been associated with increase in suicide rates. The U.S. reported an increase in suicide during the Spanish flu in the early 1900s. Other examples, um, Hong Kong observed an increase in elderly suicides during the 2003 SARS outbreak. Possible risk factors for suicide during pandemics include isolation, fear, marginalization, psychological disorders, economic fallout, and increased domestic abuse. The COVID-19 pandemic exasperates multiple factors that may increase suicides. Uh, SARS-CoV-2 infected 76 million people worldwide in 2020. Economic stress is associated with higher suicide rates. Social isolation is associated with increased suicide thoughts. Participation in religious communities is associated with lower suicide rates. Churches and community centers have also been forced to close, contributing to social isolation and possible higher suicide rates. Continuous media coverage of the pandemic may intensify anxiety and fear for individuals with pre-existing mental health conditions. Barriers to mental health treatments that have arisen due to the pandemic include increased restrictions at healthcare facilities. In the U.S., firearm sales have surged with a 41% increase in March 2020. Um... I'm scrolling through some some information, deciding what I want to read. Um, It's talking about certain groups that are more vulnerable to the effects of the pandemic and experience increased suicide rates, like the elderly um, who are being isolated, the youth, um, possibly to disruptions in education, extracurriculars, and support services, racial minorities... The unemployed, the pandemic is predicted to cost 25 million jobs worldwide. Um, mentally, the mentally ill people with pre-existing mental health conditions, healthcare workers who medical staff have reported increased hopelessness, guilt, and insomnia, all of which in, are increased for suicide. Um... Adequate and equitable access to mental health care should be ensured, for example, through increased telepsychiatry and mental health helplines. Digital connectedness should be encouraged to prevent social isolation. I mean, these are just ways to work around the situation we're in now. Um, I just wanted to read through and bring light to the risk of suicide in direct relation to the pandemic that we're in and how everyone's just talking about all this bullshit and no one's talking about suicide, no one's talking about mental health. People are talking about it, but what are they really doing? It's like it's like a moot point that they just 
run through on the teleprompter on these fucking news channels like, oh yeah, you know, suicide's going up, people are drinking more, people are getting divorced more, domestic violence. Well, what is anyone actually doing about it? Um, I have some more things I want to read through, so bear with me. Every day, 22 veterans lose their battle to, po to PTSD on American soil. That is one veteran every 65 minutes. The rate for the active duty individual services per 100,000, according to the report, were 23, 23 for the Army, 23 for Marine Corps, 14 for Air Force, 13 for Navy. Um, military suicide awareness, hashtag 22 a day movement is the advocacy action network and the natural next step to the mission of the military veteran project. So there's resources like the military suicide awareness, um, or on the military veteran project.org. Um, I know that through the family, we are asking people to donate to American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. You can go to the Veteran Affairs page and find a lot of resources there. I know that Tyler and I have read the book, The Body Keeps the Score, and um, that uh, author is actually um, part of the beginning stages in research with PTSD and for veterans. Um, worked worked for the VA and um, anyway, that's a great book for anyone who wants to understand PTSD and how um, what we experience in our life is stored emotionally in our body. And even if you're not consciously thinking about it, um, that is emotionally in our bodies. Um, and Tyler, I want to ask him to kind of talk a little bit more to that, but, um, I just wanted to also throw a few more things out there. Every day, approximately 130 Americans die by suicide. There's one death by suicide in the U S every 11 minutes. So by the time that this podcast is done, there will be, have, there would have been three deaths. Depression affects 20 to 25% of Americans ages 18 and up. Suicide takes the life of over 48,000 Americans every year. Um, there is one suicide for every estimated 25 suicide attempts. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for 15 to 24 year olds in America and the fourth leading cause of death for adults ages 18 to 65. <sighs> so thanks for bearing with me as I read all those numbers. I just wanted to get, expose the tip of the iceberg for all of us. And I asked Tyler before the podcast started if he could take a few minutes to um, shed some light on some alternative ways to find happiness, work through depression, work through things like PTSD. Um, and I wanted him to just talk a little bit uh, about alternate ways to to treat depression and find happiness. <clears throat> well, first I'll just say, because this is probably the, the bit of time that I'm going to take to really speak to this overall. I want to say how much I admire for Ashley for coming on here and sharing what her truth and experience has been because I literally couldn't even imagine what she's going through to be beside her in this has been so hard for me, but I want to be there for her. And I, I just can't imagine what it would be like to be going through this um, as hard as it is for just being a person on the outside looking in. As far as depression and suicide, the perspective that I take on this is 
a meta perspective on what the result of suicide is, which is, uh, in some ways a giving up on life. Uh, and typically that is a life that is devoid of meaning or hope. It is so amazingly important to find meaning in your life, in our lives. Whatever way we can do that, that is what we have to do. And we have to constantly remind ourselves, we have to remind those that we love, <clears throat> that there is always a purpose for staying alive. In depression, and in suicidal depression, you're so deep in the hole of solitude, so deep in the hole of the delusion of your life not having meaning or purpose, that there's no more desire to move on. And I understand that. I've experienced times of depression, not suicidal, but it's really hard. It's really, really hard. And for those of you that, that have experienced it as well, you know this. For those of you that have not experienced this, it would be really hard for you to understand. But that's okay. If you can just try to pay attention to those that are experiencing hardship, be aware of what depression might look like. That is the most important thing you can do as an outsider looking in. What does this look like? Typically people with depression will hide. When somebody is low enough, they don't want to be seen. I've noticed this in family members of mine, and I've noticed this in myself when I've experienced these lows. You don't want to be seen. You don't want to be in the presence of others. You don't want others to know what you're going through. It's a complete solitary confinement of your soul and spirit. So if you notice somebody hiding from you, if you notice somebody putting their walls up and not wanting to communicate with you, this is the clearest sign, especially if this is consistent, that somebody is very likely going through a really hard time. They're not going to tell you they're depressed. They're not going to tell you they're having a hard time because society doesn't condone a non-achiever, a non-happy person, a person that's experiencing hardship. We don't accept that shadow in people. But guess what? We have to learn to do it. If not, those that are experiencing these lows will not come out. Depression, anxiety, and suicide will increase. And the shame about those experiences will also increase. Why do you think people are not asking for help? Because there's shame about experiencing the lows because it's not acceptable. It has to be acceptable because it's a part of the human experience. You have to accept somebody in their lows just as you accept somebody in their highs. So pay attention, pay attention to when someone hides. As far as what can be done then, there are many, many tools for working your way out of the hole. Um, if you're the one experiencing depression, the tools that you might look to, to grab or, or hold on to, very simply out in the open, is always a talk therapy, a therapist of some sort. Talking about your experience is the easiest thing that you can do. And being okay with asking for help. Ask 
a friend, hey, can you be a sounding board for me so that I could tell you about how hard my experience has been lately? If you can't afford a therapist. If you can't afford a therapist, talk to a therapist. If you can't or don't want to talk to a therapist, talk to a coach. Anybody who is working in the presence of others in mental health or health in general, speak to them. If you want to go deeper, plant medicines are absolutely, this is not even a fucking argument. They are so proven to improve mental health now that you cannot avoid the statistics, which I will not even go into. It, it's not even worth my time to share with you how well proven now that these things work. I've met people that said, if I wouldn't have taken ayahuasca, I would have killed myself and I wouldn't have been here. I've witnessed that. I've seen that. I've been there with people that have been right at the edge and they went to ayahuasca and they took it and then they considered living longer. How does this work? Why does this happen? The point is, is that it does happen. Ketamine being used, Johns Hopkins, Imperial University in Great Britain, um, shit, where else? I mean, MAPS and well, MAPS is doing it through these uh, through these universities, but yeah, MAPS is doing a ton of great work. Um, Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies out of Santa Cruz. Um, ketamine for depression is is absolutely one of the best things that you can do. Because it gives you a perspective on what your experience has been. It, get, it allows you to look at your life from a different point of view and realize, oh, okay, there's a different way to see what I've been experiencing lately. Psilocybin, it allows you to experience something spiritual, to find the meaning. Find the meaning. That's what it's giving you, the meaning behind life. And then for, for veterans, MDMA and PTSD, they are using the word cure, not treat. This is really important. In the studies, in the results of the studies coming out of MAPS that are now through phase three FDA trials, they are using the word cure in the result of MDMA use with a psychotherapist for PTSD. That is veterans who experience trauma in war or in warlike situations that cannot integrate their experiences going forward. They find a therapist. They work with MDMA in the presence of a therapist. They are then able to greet and become aware of their experiences that were traumatic in a compassionate and loving way. This is literally what happens in a psychotherapy session with MDMA. It reframes the experiences that were traumatic before into something that's beautiful and something that serves you going forward. Now, if you're not willing to do plant medicines, I understand that. They could be really challenging, really scary. So whatever your choice is in this situation, whether you're the one that's depressed or whether you're the one that's supporting depression or whether you're the one that's supporting grief, you have to take the harder route. To get somewhere comfortable, you have to get uncomfortable. So just allow yourself and encourage yourself to know that on the other side of something that really fucking sucks is going to be something better. Is that it? <laughs> Thank you. Um, I I just want to. Uh, I want to thank you for sharing all of that because I know that that's the world you operate in, and so um, there's no better person in my world who can um, shed some light on alternative ways uh, to seek healing and um, something that 
we've talked a little bit about between us and with friends is this idea of like a tool belt for life. And a lot of people start with talk therapy. And I think finally we're getting to a point where it's not so shameful to say you're in therapy um, compared to at least previous generations. And therapy is great. It's a great place to start. I think we all need to start somewhere. We're all on our own path and our healing. And when we are starting to talk about things, we're starting to bring things to the surface. And when you bring something to the surface, it can be very, very challenging to integrate, to absorb, to become aware of, to accept. So the follow-up is what other tools do you have in your tool belt to help you integrate the things that you're talking up to the surface. So talk therapy is a great place to start, but what other things can we use? And obviously, you know, plant medicines, there could be a lot of fear around that, and there could be a lot of people that are really unaware of the possibilities, so I'm really happy that through this conversation we can shed light on that. But some in-between, you know, tools can, of course, be physical fitness and finding community if you find a a somatic coach or a somatic guide of some sort like ashley said earlier the body keeps the score talks a lot about physical practices that address the trauma stored in the body i I personally worked with a um a therapist who practices what's called mnri and uh, it's something about Moscatova sensory neuromotor reintegration, I believe. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a tongue tie. But if you just Google MNRI in all caps, this is a, a massage therapy protocol that massages the tendon guards in each of your four tendon guard reflex areas where if your body experiences trauma, you'll notice your body clench and your hips and your shoulders will actually contract down into your core. This is a trauma response. So the therapist will actually massage those areas in a particular manner. And what's interesting about that is you'll actually notice, and I've had clients and myself experience, memories come up as the therapist massages this area. So that's an example of Mm -hmm. something that, you know, somebody might use that's a somatic approach to releasing trauma if you don't want to use any sort of plant medicine or Mm -hmm. talk therapy, Mm -hmm. because it, it does have to, and this is finally coming to light, like, the body has to be addressed in trauma because that's where it's stored. Mm-hmm. It's not the mind. The mind helps you uh, shine light on the awareness of what the the body is holding. And I think that's a beautiful example of the fact that there are so many different modalities of healing and so many different types of healers. One of one type of healer that we're all familiar with is a therapist, is a psychotherapist or psychiatrist. That is someone who could be considered a healer, and um, I I need to speak to the psychiatry. Well, yeah. Uh. Okay. Just well, for a let, brief moment. I just want to say that it is important to say that everyone is different, and what works for you may not work for someone else, but just like just like trying to find a therapist that fits you it's like be willing to try new things be willing to try reiki be willing to try energy healing be willing to try yoga be willing to learn about the chakra energy systems in the body be willing to try somatic therapy be willing to try microdosing of psilocybin be willing to try different things because you just you 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 can only go so far with other people's recommendations. It really depends on what works for you. And um, having many tools in the tool belt is um, going to just inevitably help you when you know difficult times emerge. And um, the more you're willing to experience in life and to try, the the more tools you can have. The only thing I want to say about psychiatry <clears throat> is. That is a band-aid on a wound that needs stitches. If you think that a pill is going to solve your problem, you're wrong. It will allow you to go on for a little bit longer, but you will pay the price for taking that pill for the rest of your life. So it's either you do that and you avoid the depth of what's going on in your body, or you take the harder route for the shorter amount of time and heal in the long run. 
Yeah, we have, like, this idea in our Western culture, like, pop a pill if you're ill, and it seems like the easiest thing to do is, like, oh, I'm not feeling well, take a Tylenol, I'm not feeling well, take an antidepressant, and I don't want to say, I don't want to write that kind of medication off, like, it's all Yeah, if you're severely depressed, take the meds. Everyone is different, and depending on where you're at in your journey, medication can certainly support you. And to my point that I was just making, what other tools do you have in your tool belt? Because relying on medications indefinitely does not heal the root. It puts a Band-Aid on, like Tyler is saying. And if you need a Band-Aid right now to stop the bleeding so that you don't hemorrhage to death... Slow the bleeding. Slow the bleeding, thank you. Then great. We're not saying that that doesn't have a time and place, but... You know, we're saying expose yourself to a more holistic uh, approach to your healing um, and be compassionate and kind and gentle with yourself because wherever you are in this moment is exactly where you need to be. And with all that being said, I just want to do a quick note on grief um, because as I have been processing this the last two weeks I've been kind of going back and forth between basically judging myself for am I grieving the right way but then also saying well there's you can't really judge yourself there is no right and wrong way so I I take a step back from judgment and and accept that whatever I'm doing is exactly what is right for me and that that's all that matters and so there's no right and wrong way to grieve and I just want to be truthful and, and say, like, I've noticed that I've, like, in the first couple of days, I was very exhausted and I was crying a little bit every day. And I have a life that still needs to go on. I have a lot happening in my world. So I want to grieve. I want to be emotional. I want to address those feelings and allow those feelings to come up. But for me, I need balance. I need times where I can maybe kind of forget for a minute, or I need times where I can put the grief on the back burner so that I can have the energy and the mental clarity to work on my business to make money so I can pay for my life because I'm not necessarily in an affluent place where that can just like, you know, where I can take a couple weeks off. Like, so life continues and I really can't judge myself for having to put grief on the back burner for a minute. I But I have noticed that in that process, there may be like some walls building up around my heart, around, around um, feeling vulnerable enough to allow my emotions to come up. But we did just do a CrossFit-inspired exercise that honored my brother because he was very much into CrossFit and it's something that they do in that community where they create specific workouts to honor fallen soldiers. So, and Tyler has a a history and connection in CrossFit as well. So, um, it was something that he did. He organized, um, a workout and we did that and I want you to share what it was, but I'll just say real quickly that, um, I noticed that, you know, towards the end of our workout when when I was feeling more exhausted by the physical exertion, I, I felt the walls around my heart coming down and I felt emotion coming to the surface and I was aware of that and I'm aware now that if I'm feeling like I need to let some emotion out but that it's hard then I am aware now that physical exertion or movement in my body helps me to release my emotions. And when we end this, I'll have you say what the workout was. I want to finish my point on grief. Um, I just want to talk as well to the idea of externalizing your pain as blaming someone. You want to find someone to blame or something to blame. You want to find something to be the fault, something to take the fault, and in everything that's come to light, I could find other people to blame, I could find other people to be upset at, I could find, I could try blaming myself as well, and although I, I recognize that urge, I also recognize that it's an externalizing, um, and that ultimately, 
that that doesn't really serve me and that really actually doesn't help me process my grief. Um, so I, I do stay away from going too far into be wanting to be mad at someone or something. It just, I, I acknowledge that that emotion wants to be there, but that it doesn't really serve me. And in that, you know, just saying that like parts of us can feel a different way. A part of me can feel sad. A part of me can put it on the back burner. A part of me can want to be mad at someone or something. And it's okay for all those parts to exist simultaneously. We don't have to take on the identity of one of those things. And, um, uh, you know, in terms of grief, having someone to check in on you and support you. So I'm really grateful for the way that Tyler, you know, has supported me and given me patience and um, space to feel however I feel. Um, I'm really grateful to have a partner that, specifically have a male partner who's willing to um, be vulnerable with his emotions as well. Um, And I'm really grateful to have friends like my friend Mackenzie who um, has worked in mental health and is willing to take the time in her day to check in on me really consistently. And with that being said, I also try to be conscious of releasing my expectations of not just how I should process this and how I should feel grief, but how others should respond or how others should support me. There is no should, there is no right and wrong. And you know, if I if I say, hey, you know, this is happening and someone doesn't reach out at all or someone likes my post or someone texts only once and never texts again I can't say that that's right or wrong because they have their own perspective they have their own lens they they may have triggered something in their own existence I need to release expectations of how the world around me handles me and my grief so those are things that I want to bring to light and um about ready to wrap this up but for anyone who um would like to honor my brother you can donate to the american foundation for suicide prevention if you knew him and you want to attend the memorial we're going to have a virtual uh live recording on august 21st and if you want that information you can reach out to me and if you also want to honor him by doing the crossfit workout that tyler created i'll let him quickly share what that was yeah and this is on my instagram as well if you want to go check out the workout um it's listed there but it's called bachman because that is his last name (laughs) um and it's a 31-minute AMRAP, which means 31 minutes of as many rounds as possible of the following. Because he was 31 years old. Because he was 31 years old. Um, and we started off with nine burpee pull-ups. Nine is the number of the month that he was born in, September. And then we did seven step-ups each leg, because he was born on September 7th. I held a... a it's actually unimportant what I held, but Ashley and I were both holding weight. Choose a weight that's appropriate for you to do the step-ups in some form of like a ball or a bag so that you can hold it in some sort of fashion. And then after the seven pull-ups, or seven step-ups each leg, we did eight, eight uh, cleans with the bag where we either threw the bag or ball over our shoulder or picked it up to our chest and dropped it. It's a T-ball clean is what it's called in the CrossFit world. And why did we choose eight? 89 for oh, the year 89. he was born. So yeah. eight for that and nine for the squats, squats and holding then, weight. Yeah. So whatever weight you have, you're going to do nine squats. And then with the weight as well after that, you're going to carry that weight around a basketball court, which is something like, I don't know, like 300 feet. So just it's not around. that far. And then, then, yeah, so as many rounds as possible of those things. If you didn't catch that, like I said, go check out the Instagram. It's sometimes easier to read as it's listed on text. And uh, if any other uh, foundations to support or statistics that are notable comes up, then I will add that to the episode notes. Um, 
and just appreciate everyone for following our journey and holding space for me to be vulnerable and appreciate everyone who has sent good vibes and love and prayers our direction for me and my family and um, I hope that this helps someone whether it's someone who feels depressed and suicidal or someone who's dealing with the grief from losing a loved one in any manner I just hope that this helps someone Um, it it will probably help at the very least me (laughs) so (laughs) with that being said um, thanks guys and uh, love you